The last year, several of us from this church went out to the Philippines on a project. Actually, it was a year ago right now. One of the first things we noticed over there was that on every street was a little uh, shrine, a place to get out of the rain, kneel down, and worship. And in each of these shrines was a statue of a different saint. One of our first uncomfortable uh, encounters with Filipino culture was very early on being there, to be awakened at five in the morning when we're trying to catch up on the sleep we lost and traveling, but to be awakened by a band procession coming down the street with a few dozen uh, worshipers following, carrying a statue of a saint. And in the confused popular religion there, saints are seen as people who were so perfect and their actions and their demeanor and their attitudes and their relationships so perfect as to be worthy of our worship. Now, we know that that's not true, that no one is worthy of our worship but God himself. But we still look at saints as someone different than ourselves. We don't think of ourselves as saints. In fact, it's an insult to be accused that you think of yourself as a saint. Or if you're putting somebody down, you say, he thinks he's a saint. A late uh, great Bible teacher, Dr. Harry Ironside, used to uh, wake his audiences to attention by saying, have you ever seen a real live saint? And he'd say, well, you're looking at one right now. Saint Harry. And biblically, he was right. In fact, you are looking at one right now. Saint Chris. And I'm looking at a lot of them. There's St. Kelly. And I see St. Eric and St. Arlene, St. Jim, St. Linda. And it sounds funny to us to have saints stuck at the beginning of our names. But realize it doesn't sound at all funny to God. Now this morning we're going to be looking at a passage about sainthood. About what it is, about how it's attained, how it's maintained, where it leads we're going to start a study of the book of Philippians. This is really a fun book. It's a delightful book. It's all about joy and rejoicing. Actually, uh, when I read through this, getting ready to teach, it reminded me a lot of you people, a lot of the people in this church. And I think that's why it's such a delight to me. That's why I'm so excited about studying this book. It is actually not so much a book as it is a letter. A letter from Paul, who was writing from a prison in Rome about 62 A.D. About 12 years earlier, before he wrote this letter, he had visited Philippi. And he had met a woman there, a, a very successful businesswoman by the name of Lydia. And she, through their conversation, became a believer in Jesus Christ. And she invited Paul and Silas to stay in her house. And so they stayed in her house and went out from there, engaging people in conversation, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And as more and more people became Christians, a small congregation began to meet in Lydia's house. Unfortunately, the ministry there began to affect certain business interests in Philippi. So Paul and Silas were arrested. They were publicly beaten. They were thrown in prison. God took advantage of that to lead the Philippian jailer to himself. 
he became a Christian, joined the church. The next day, the uh, city officials said, well, we've punished him enough, let him go. Paul said, no. Wait a minute. You arrested us, you beat us, you kept us in prison without a trial. That's no way to treat a Roman citizen. If you want us to leave, you come get us out yourself by way of an apology. When these uh, city leaders heard that Paul and Silas were Romans, it really frightened them. They got concerned. Because Philippi was a Roman colony. It was actually in Greece, but it had a status called Ius Italicum, meaning that even though the city was in Greece, it was treated as if it were on Italian soil. A citizen of Philippi was a citizen of Rome. Paul takes advantage of this as an illustration back in the third chapter, in verse 20, when he says, you as Christians are citizens of heaven. He says the same type of things going on here. Just like Philippi is in Greece, but legally and technically they're citizens of Rome, we live on this earth, but legally and technically we are citizens of heaven with all the privileges and prerogatives that go along with that. Like I said, these uh, city leaders were all upset when they heard that Paul and Silas were Romans because, again, they were jealous of preserving that special status. They were afraid of anything that would jeopardize that. So they asked them, they begged them, it says, to leave town. So after a very short time in Philippi, Paul and Silas left town. And the church there continued to grow and to develop, perhaps under, under Luke's leadership. And over the years, Paul was able to go back and visit several times. And a very close, intimate relationship developed between Paul and these Christians here at Philippi. In fact, they uh, became involved in Paul's financial support as he went out on missionary journeys. Paul really loved these people, and they loved him. But there were some problems that were growing. The main problem that he writes about is a as a problem of disunity. And we'll see that crop up over and over in the rest of the book. Paul sees these problems. He hears about these. And so he wants to write them and discuss some of these things with them. Paul's writing a letter to his friends. And he begins it with a normal salutation, letting them know who the letter is from. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Paul's writing this letter. Timothy isn't. But Paul includes Timothy because Timothy was right there with him, visiting him in prison, probably praying with him for the Corinthians or for the Philippians, concerned for what's going on in Philippi. And in fact, Paul intends later on, after they've received the letter, to send Timothy to follow it up and to give them more encouragement and help them work on some of the things they needed to work on. Paul refers to the two of them as bondservants of Christ Jesus, and then he just drops it there. In every other letter, except for the letter to the Thessalonians, every other letter to churches, Paul also includes the fact that he's an apostle. And I think the reason is that he wants to establish right at the beginning that he has the authority, even the responsibility of writing to them and correcting their problems. And they have a responsibility, a duty to listen and to respond Because the word of an apostle is the word of our Lord. But here he leaves that off. And I think the reason is 
is because he knows he doesn't need to establish that, that that authority is already there in their relationship. He knows that they love him and are going to listen to what he has to say and are going to respond to what he has to say. In referring to himself as a servant of Christ, Paul's saying some important things about himself. First, I think we have to realize that he's not using the word servant in our sense of the word. It would, it would be a better translation for us to say a slave. Paul, the slave of Jesus Christ. This is the way Paul looks at himself. This is his self-image, that he belongs to Jesus Christ. He was bought with a price. He belongs to Jesus and therefore cannot ever belong to anyone or anything else. His time, his energy, his resources are at Christ's disposal. This way of looking at yourself is very freeing. It adds clarity and order to your life. You've decided in advance that you will do what Jesus says. You've decided that his will is now more important to you than your own. Now, we may forget our commitment to this. We may renege on it, withdraw from it. But to the degree that we hold to this commitment, our lives do become orderly and healthy. Right now in the adult Sunday school class, both hours, they're showing film ser- the film series Ordering Your Private World by Gordon MacDonald. I hear it's an excellent series. I read the book with the same title. It was an excellent book. But the foundation of order in your private world is the reality of the Lordship of Christ in your life. Is realizing that you are His slave. It goes against our culture to belong to anything, or to anyone, actually. It's seen as humiliating, degrading. But belonging is a basic need. We all need to belong to a family, to a community. Most of all, to belong to God. And it's no disgrace. In fact, the, the greatest title that anyone could receive in the Old Testament was servant of Yahweh, servant of God. That's the title given to Moses and to Joshua. It's a title given to David and Jeremiah and other prophets. That was and is the greatest compliment that anyone, any man or woman can be given, to be the servant of God. It's interesting, the, the uh, subtle change that Paul initiates here. He says, the servant of Christ Jesus. She's using the same terminology, but rather than Yahweh, Christ Jesus. You see, in the scriptures, what is said of one member of the Trinity, one person of the Trinity can be said about the others. And in fact, from the New Testament, we know that in order to be a servant of God, we must be servants of Christ. Paul then includes the address to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Here Paul uses that term saint. And he's not talking uh, to a few saints who happen to be living in Philippi. I'm, I'm mixed up with the rest of the Christians. Kind of a special strata of people in the church. Now he's talking to all the saints, all the Christians in Philippi. The term saint is elsewhere uh, translated holy 
or in other forms it can be translated sanctified. All these words mean is something or someone that is set apart for a special use, a special purpose. Throughout the Old Testament, there are a lot of things that are referred to as holy. There are uh, holy stones that are used to build the altar of God. Now realize those are just normal, everyday rocks. There was nothing particularly superior about those stones. There was nothing special. But what made them special is that they were set aside to be used in the worship of God. The temple in Jerusalem is referred to as holy. Not because it was the best temple around. It was superior to every other temple in the region. That wasn't true. There were other nations who had bigger and fancier, more impressive temples. But the temple in Jerusalem was holy, is special because it was set aside for the worship of God. And that made it special. These people in the church in Philippi are holy. They're saints. Not because they're better than the other people in Philippi but because they've been set apart by God for a very special purpose. In a real sense, what Paul is saying about them as saints is synonymous with what he's already said about himself as a servant of God, that they belong to God. They, are, they belong to Jesus Christ for a special purpose. If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, that is, if you have trusted Jesus for your relationship with God, for your eternal future, then you also are holy. You are a saint, just like these saints in Philippi, just like St. Harry. The reason we struggle with this is because we don't feel particularly holy. We look at our lives, <clears throat> our attitudes, our relationships... And they don't strike us as being all that great. Maybe not horrible, but not wonderful either. But you see, holiness is not a function of behaving holy. As uh, James Boyce puts it, he says, It is true that one who is a saint in the biblical sense will strive to be holy. But his holiness, however little or however great it may be, does not make him a saint. He is a saint because he has been set apart by God. Next, Paul mentions the overseers and the deacons. This word overseer is elsewhere. Uh, these same people are referred to as elders. And again, Paul is not uh, kind of selecting out some super saints that he wants to especially address. These are just everyday, ordinary saints who were given specific responsibility in the church. The overseers were given the responsibility of guiding, leading, protecting the church. The deacons were given the responsibility of seeing to the needs of the poor and the needy. And Paul's just anxious that these leaders listen to what's in this letter, that they respond to it in the way they lead, in the way they conduct themselves as leaders. He just wants to make sure they're listening as well. Okay, in verse 2, Paul greets them. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul's doing here is he's taking the typical 
greetings of the day, changes it a little. Basically, he takes the typical greetings of the day, sticks two of them together. He takes the typical Greek greeting. If you were walking down the street and you were a Greek of this time, you wouldn't say, hello. You wouldn't say, howdy, how are you doing? You'd say, grace. And that would have been the normal way to greet each other. And he takes the typical Hebrew greeting, peace. That's still the, the, the typical Hebrew greeting, shalom, peace. And he takes these two greetings and he sticks them together as a greeting, but also as a statement. You see, everyone wants peace. They want the uh, peace with God, but especially they want the peace inside themselves that comes from having peace with God. But the only way to gain this type of peace is through grace, through God's undeserved grace. Now, it's actually redundant of me to say undeserved grace because grace means undeserved favor. But it's important to over and over emphasize the fact that grace is undeserved. We forget that. That's one of the hardest things for any of us to hold on to, that grace is undeserved. We quickly fall into thinking that God's favor rests on our behavior, on uh, how holy we act, or it rests on our giftedness, or maybe even on uh, how faithful we are to read our Bibles and to pray. Probably 80, maybe even 90% of the counseling I do all boils down to a problem right here. People are hurting because they fear, because they feel that they fail, and they don't deserve God's love. And it scares them, and it causes them to be self-condemning. Well, that's what grace is all about. We do fail. We do sin. But God still loves us. In fact, until we face the fact that we fail, until we face the fact that we don't deserve that love, we really can't receive it. We really don't accept it as a free gift. But once we do face that, once we do face that we fail, we're sinners, then we're in the perfect position to accept His love, to enjoy it, to appreciate it, to glory in it. To worship Him as a result of it. And we've got to remind ourselves this over and over. I um, wrote a letter to myself about 10 years ago. I wrote it in 1977. Just to remind myself of God's grace. And I take the letter and I stick it in my filing cabinet. When I'm looking for something, I run across it, I pull it out, and I read it. And then I stick it someplace else so that I'll forget where it is. And when I'm looking for something else, I'll run across it. And read it. Because I have to remind myself over and over that God loves me no matter what I'm doing or not doing. Let me read just a few lines from this letter. It says, Right now, I have everything that I need for total happiness. I need no more Bible study. I need no more fellowship. I need no more money. I need no more sleep. I need no better house or car or stereo. I need no less sin. I need no less fears. Right now, in the midst of all this, I have peace with God 
through the grace of Jesus Christ. He has given me all that I need. He has given me the privilege of being in His presence, of being with the one I love. I can be still and know that He is God. All else is insignificant compared to this incredible gift. Real peace comes only through grace. Okay, next Paul goes on to tell us about his prayers for the Philippians. First he tells us how he prays, and then he tells us what he prays. Let's take a look at how he prays in verses 3 through 5. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul says that every time he thinks of these people, he prays for them. Now, what a great habit. To every time you think of somebody, rather than worry about them, rather than wonder about them, maybe even in some cases rather than resent them, to pray for them and to thank God for them. I am uh, praying right now that God would build this habit in me. And when I think of somebody, I would just automatically turn to him and pray for them. And Paul says that the thought of these people brings him joy. He really likes these people. He really appreciates them. He's really bonded with them. Now why? What is the cement that draws these people together? You see throughout the whole letter how intimate, how much they love each other. Well, where did that come from? I think Paul gives us a clue there in verse 5. He says, In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. The term Paul uses for participation in the gospel. Participation is the word fellowship. It's a very rich word. Its basic meaning is to share something. Like, like tearing your peanut butter jelly sandwich in half and giving half of it to someone. And as you both eat it, you are having fellowship. You are sharing that. But the term also includes the affection and the camaraderie that comes out of this kind of sharing. The giving and the taking and the expressions of love. And the thing that Paul and these saints share is the gospel. That is, they have each responded to the gospel. They have each put their trust in Jesus Christ. And they are working together to take that gospel to more and more people. It's the same thing that he's talking about down in verse 7. <clears throat> Let me read verses 7 and 8. He says, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You are all partakers or partners of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Again, Paul's expressing his love, his delight in them, his desire to be with them. His great, strong affection. Well, what breeds this kind of affection? What breeds this kind of bonding, this rich fellowship? Again, it is a common commitment, a common purpose, a common goal. And that goal is to take the truth of the grace of Jesus Christ 
to appreciate it in our own lives and to take the word of that grace and to share it with those who have not yet heard. When Paul says we're partners in grace, how does he say it? He says, um, defending and confirming the gospel. What he's saying is that God is through each of these saints as he does through all saints. God is defending, or perhaps in this case a better translation of the word apologia would be God is explaining the gospel to those who have not yet heard. And he is confirming the gospel. That is, establishing it, putting it into the lives of believers, making it a reality in their everyday life, not just something they know up here and they nod to when somebody mentions, but something that they understand as they face the confusion of their life and the fears of their life and the heartaches of their life, and they know God's grace. And it is a commitment to these things, to these goals, that is one of the strongest bonds between believers. This is really the key to fellowship. I know a lot of you think that pies are the key to fellowship. Pies are great, and they help. But this is the key, a common commitment, a common purpose, a common goal. Quite a few years ago, I was speaking at a conference in, in Zimbabwe. There was a civil war going on at the time, which was largely an issue between the white Rhodesians and the black Zimbabweans. And in this conference, I was the only white person of about 300 participants. And many of these people were actively involved in the conflict. Ethnically, culturally, socially, economically, politically, I had virtually nothing in common with anyone else at that conference. But these were my brothers in Christ. We had the same Lord. We had the same purpose, and that was to make Jesus Christ known. And as a result, there was a richness in our fellowship. In a very short time, I was only with them for about eight days. But in that very short time, we grew to love each other and respect each other and appreciate each other. There was a delight in that fellowship. You here in this congregation come from a variety of social and economic backgrounds. We have among us, we have executives, we have laborers, we have civil servants and entrepreneurs. We've got uh, married, single, all kinds of ages, all kinds of, of life situations. But what draws us all together is a commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and a commitment to His kingdom and to, to the degree that that commitment to Jesus Christ and to His kingdom is central in our lives, to that degree our fellowship deepens. It's one of the things I appreciate about this church, about you people. Your commitment to the gospel is a constant encouragement to me. I see it expressed in your financial giving to the ministries of this church, and especially to the missionaries who are coming out and going out from this church like Nicholas and Danelle Ivans and Raynette Plesson, Chris Hedges. We're all going out this summer. But I see your commitment 
to the advance of the kingdom. And I see it in, in the number of you that are very involved in the ministries of this church. All of which are, are targeted, are focused on establishing or confirming the gospel in the lives of believers, in our lives. And taking that same gospel and defending it or explaining it to those who have not yet responded. In talking about uh, verses 7 and 8, I skipped over one of the greatest verses in the whole Bible. Look at verse 6. It says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What Paul is doing here is explaining to them why he prays with joy and delight rather than worry. Because he knows there are problems, very serious problems developing in the church. But still he's able to pray with delight and thanksgiving and joy. Because he has confidence, not in them, but in God who began the work, who made them saints in the first place. And he knows that God is going to finish what he started. And that gives him confidence. Well, that's a, a comfort to us as well. That it should provide confidence to us as well. You know, we fail. We sin. We forget God. And we can easily become discouraged with ourselves, despairing. But rather than despairing, let's renew our trust in the one who made us saints in the first place. He called us out of darkness into light. And he's going to take us from where we are and he's going to continue the job He started, making us over into the image of His Son, teaching us to love like Christ loves, to behave like Christ behaves. So rather than getting discouraged and despondent, let's renew our trust in Him. That's what faith is all about. Now it may seem as if we have no part in this process. He started it, He's going to finish it. But that isn't true. We do have a part to play in the process. Last uh, month, we took about uh, 18 of the college leaders down to a training camp in Colorado. One of the exercises they took us through in order to build confidence was rock climbing. I tore all the skin off the tips of my fingers trying to uh, hold on to a little tiny ledge. <laughs> scared out of my mind. But we always had a rope on us tied to a harness through a carabiner at the top of the rock, and the other end was held by a guy called a belayer. And it was this belayer's job to, as we climbed, to keep pulling in the slack so that if you fell, which I did several times, you would just hang there. You wouldn't drop all the way down to the ground and smash yourself in little pieces. And once you got to the top of the rock, the only way to get down was to lean back on that rope and to get your feet perpendicular to the rock, which meant parallel to the ground, hanging out there over nothing, and jump. And as you jumped, he would feed line, and you'd go down. And then you'd jump again and go down. 
And if he got panicked and he said, I can't take this, and he leaned in and he tried to grab that rock, you'd swing against it and you'd smash yourself and you'd get all bruised and skinned. And he'd have to hold you there until you got yourself together enough to trust him and to lean back out and to jump again. Well, God is very much like that belayer. He's getting us down the rock. As we trust Him, as we lean on Him, as frightening as that might be, He gets us down. He accomplishes the job He started. He's making us into the image of His Son. He's making us Christ-like. But when we panic, and we decide we're going to get down the rock ourselves, and we lean in, instead of lean on Him, we get bruised and skinned. And He has to hold us there until we again trust Him, until we again lean on Him and are willing to jump. He's going to finish the job. He has committed Himself to making us like Jesus. To fight Him for control is foolishness. When you're on that rock, there's only one way to get down. So you've got to trust You've got to lean out. And in life, there is only one way to become the people that we want to be. Loving, constructive, healthy people. To be the people that God wants to make us. So to fight Him for control is just foolishness. It only makes sense to trust Him. To save your skin. Finally, let's uh, take a look at uh, what Paul prays. In verses 9 through 11, the first, uh, verses 3 through 8, he explained how he prayed, why he prayed that way. And now he tells us what he prays. He says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul says that he prays that God would take the love that he has already begun to develop in these Philippians and multiply it more and more. He implies that they're already loving. They're already doing well. In fact, they're doing great. But what Paul wants for them is to be better and better at loving, more and more skilled, wiser and wiser, stronger and stronger in their ability to love like God loves. This is what life is all about, people. This is where real life is found, depending on God depending on Jesus Christ as He teaches us to love the people in our lives. This is what Paul wants for them. And he says it can only happen, love can only grow and mature like this if it's accompanied by knowledge and discernment. Or I think your NIV Bible say knowledge and deep insight. These things are necessary for love to mature, to grow, to become what it, what, it, what it can be in our lives. In fact, without these things, love can be destructive. 
I know of some uh, Indians down in Central America, or actually Central Mexico, who were given um, aspirin for pain. Now, that's simple enough. One of these guys decided if one aspirin helped a little, two helped a lot, 30 or 40 would help a whole lot. And in that case, what happened was that what was intended for good, for love, became destructive. Good intentions are not enough. No matter how good my intentions, no matter how much I want to love you, you would be fools to let me love you by uh, doing open heart surgery on you. In that case, love without knowledge would be fatal. But you see, in our society, there's this myth that when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to relational things, how we should relate to other people or to ourselves, even to some degree when it comes to psychological things, that knowledge spontaneously generates. That somehow you just know what to do. You know the best thing, the right thing. That's no more true in spiritual things than it is in open heart surgery. Good intentions are not enough. People with good intentions are tearing their lives apart and destroying the people around them. People with good intentions are dispensing bad counsel about how to love your spouse or to love your children, to love your neighbor, to love yourself. And the result of this bad counsel is the destruction of of relationships, the destruction of families, of personalities, of spirits. In order for love to be healthy and constructive, it needs knowledge. And knowledge comes from the Word of God. That's why we've got to be spending time in the Scriptures, reading the Scriptures, studying the Bible, listening to teaching from it, that's why we have to submit to what we learn, to take it seriously, to let God build these things in our lives. We cannot disobey God's Word and still pretend to be loving. But knowledge isn't enough. It must be accompanied by insight, by deep insight. We've probably all known people who had knowledge. They knew their Bibles inside and out. They didn't know how to use the truth of the scriptures to love people. Rather than truth being freeing, it was used to oppress, to burden people. Rather than it being used to love and to build, it was used to badger. Knowledge isn't enough. I remember when I was a new Christian, I had a, a close friend who had a serious substance abuse problem. And he went to a Christian counselor. The counselor said... Stop. Just don't do it anymore. Okay, that's true. I mean, that's what he needed. He needed to stop and not do it anymore. But there was absolutely no appreciation for the depth of the problem. No appreciation for the painful struggle of faith. Trusting God in the midst of repeated failure. There was no appreciation for the need for a supportive community. And without these real-life insights... My friend despaired, gave up on spiritual things. See, we need knowledge, but we also need insight 
into life, into people, and to bring these things together to really love. Paul says that he wants them to grow in knowledge and insight so that they can approve or prove or test or discover, recognize the things that are excellent. That is, the things that really work in life. The things that are really helpful in how to love your spouse on how to love your teenage child, how to love that person at work who's antagonistic toward the gospel, even how to love yourself. As we open ourselves to the knowledge that comes from God's Word, and at the same time remain honest and responsive to the things that we're learning in life, we'll gain will discover the things that really are loving, that really work, that really help. And we'll discover what really matters in life. And again, what really matters is loving. That's what it's all about. That is the great adventure of life. It's growing in our insight and our wisdom and our skill on how to love people. See, and that is the task that God has already committed Himself to accomplishing in our lives. That's what He's going to do in us. So it doesn't matter how intelligent you are or aren't. God is the one that's going to teach you to love with knowledge and discernment. It doesn't matter what mistakes you've made and have to unlearn in the process. God is going to take you through the process. You see, none of us have any reason to become discouraged and despondent. Because our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is in God who is going to teach us to love with knowledge and discernment. And the result will be that our lives will become, as he says, sincere and blameless. That word for sincere means pure, unmixed, unconfused, undiluted. We'll become more and more focused on the things that really matter in life. And other motives will begin to drop off. And the effect will be that our attitudes, our relationships... Our behavior will, as he says, be filled with the fruit of righteousness. That is, our behavior will become more mature and loving. We will begin to act like saints. We will give of ourselves, of our time, of our energy, of our resources, like saints do, like Christ does. Not only... Will we be saints because we've been set apart by God for a special purpose? But we will become holy in our dispositions, in our attitudes, in our very actions, the way we relate to people. Boy, there's nothing more exciting in life than this. This is what God is going to do in us and for us. He's going to free us from those things that destroy that ruin us and hurt those we love. There's nothing in the world more exciting. And the praise and the glory go to God because it is He, through Christ Jesus, who has made us saints. St. Harry, St. Chris, St. Tana, St. Linda. 
And it is He who is at work in our lives both to do and to will according to His good pleasure. Well, let me um, just close in prayer. And I'd like to pray using the words of Ephesians 2. Dear God, we do praise you that you are so rich in mercy, that you have loved us with a great love. And even when we were dead in our, our sins, you made us alive with Christ. You raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in order that for all time you might show the incredible riches of your grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've saved us through faith that's not of ourselves, is a gift from you, not as a result of our performance, so none of us can boast. We are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which you have prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And Lord, I do praise you for what you have begun in my life, for the lives of each one here who have put their trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. Pray for those here who may not have yet made that decision to follow you, to obey you. I pray that you would bring them to that point, that they would see that this is life. This is life eternal. I pray that they would this morning give you their lives. Lord, we worship you for what you are accomplishing. We get discouraged because we don't see progress in the areas we want to see it or like we want to see it. But our confidence is in you that you will finish what you started as we trust you, as we lean on you. And we do trust you, Lord God, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.